Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, he walks in a month. Why is the rum always Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It's a trap! Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. You can check us out at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And if you haven't already done so, head over to iTunes or Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, and subscribe, as well as leave us a rating and a review on iTunes, because it really helps us out. I am your host, Mo Long, and you can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my film reviews at cupofmo.com, and I write about tech over at techuplife.com. And tonight, I have in the studio... The boat can leave now. Tell the crew. Hey, Celluloid Fiends, it's Wes Clifton. I'm a writer, I'm a musician, and I am a movie monster. Um, You can follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Cliff Weston. And if you want to check out some of my fiction writing, you can check me out at wdclifton.wordpress.com. And it is always a pleasure to get to talk film with you. And likewise. What have you watched and picked up this week? Well, let's see. In the in, just in this week, <laughs> but since the last episode, let's see. I want to I want to say um, that I watched a movie that I'd seen before, but I rewatched it. It's called The Outsider. It's on um, it's on Netflix. It was a Netflix original. It actually stars Jared Leto, who I'm not usually a big fan of, but this movie he plays um, an American that, for unnamed reasons, is imprisoned in Japan following the Second World War and gets mixed up with uh, the Yakuza. And so it's like a Japanese gangster movie, and I just really think that movie is really good. I've seen it twice now and just really enjoyed it both times. So The Outsider on Netflix. Um, And then I also watched a documentary on Netflix this week uh, called Fear City. It's about the uh, rise and fall of the mafia in New York City during the 70s and 80s. Um, Have you heard uh, heard of that or seen that? No, I have not. And it seems like you're on a bit of a crime kick. Oh, I, I, I always go back and forth on a, on a crime kick. But this documentary is really what um, is really what kind of sparked that um, Fear City. So, yeah, it was really cool. I really enjoyed that. I always love a good mafia story. And, and this was uh, a documentary, obviously, just chronicling um, how they started using wiretaps and RICO statutes to take down the five families. So it's pretty interesting. I also, uh, based on our topic of discussion this evening, I watched... Uh, Lucio Fulci's The Psychic, also known as Seven Notes in Black. I had not seen that one before. I was so I've been digging kind of more into Fulci's um, pre-horror movie materials lately, and uh, I really liked The Psychic a lot. It's the second of his Giallo films that I've watched. Most people, I think, talk about Don't Torture a Duckling, which was very good, but I think I actually preferred The Psychic um, to Don't Torture a Duckling. It's pretty neat. It's about and- a oh, go ahead. Uh, and Don't Torture a Duckling played at Cinema Overdrive at Carolina Theater some months back, correct? 
I think so, and I that's another one of those that I really want. They've shown so many movies uh, that I really wanted to see at Cinema Overdrive, but it's where it's in the middle of the week. It's hard for me to make it sometime. Like I, I think they showed that. I think they showed The Great Silence at some point, which I really like. Um, but I just I've not seen. I didn't go to either one of those, but I did go. At, and you were with me when we watched Tenebrae at their Cinema Overdrive, so that was pretty cool. That was a really good one. Yeah, and so I watched Fulci's The Psychic, and it was really great. Um, and then uh, the only thing, I haven't picked up any movies physically. The only thing that I've picked up is I've continued my, uh, I mentioned on the last episode that I discovered this um, small press comic book uh, company called Avon Press that releases um, comic books based on Lucha Fulci movies, and I picked up some more of theirs. I picked up their Zombie Issue 5 and Issue 6 and read those and really enjoyed them. Yeah, you mentioned that last episode, and I've been yeah. meaning to pick up a couple of their of their comics. Yeah, they've made a fan out of me, so I'm uh, planning on uh, have putting in another order pretty soon. So yeah, uh, how I about will you, have man? To follow suit. Uh, so I watched recently the Final Destination series. Oh, because uh, I remember uh, seeing bits and pieces of the of the films kind of on tv here and there and i wanted to sit down and just kind of watch the whole franchise and i, I mostly enjoyed that uh, i don't think it any of the films necessarily reach the same kind of highs as you find in other franchises like halloween or, or friday the 13th or, or scream but i also didn't think that the lows were quite as low like i thought all of the movies were in some way at least watchable and enjoyable how many movies are in that franchise at this point? There are five. Nice. I've only seen the first one. I rewatched it recently. Oh, yeah. well, what did you think upon rewatching it? Um, I didn't love it, but I thought it was fun. I mean, you know, when it first came out, I remember not really caring for it very much. And um, I've heard over the years, people speak of it with a certain degree of fondness. And so I kind of wanted to revisit it because as with many other movies, uh, you know, over the course of time, maybe my opinion will have changed. But um, because, for example, another movie of the time that I didn't like initially and liked more later was uh, I know we did last summer, Um, but uh, I I liked I liked it. But uh, Final Destination, but I didn't I didn't love it, but it was a lot of fun. I I had a good time watching it. Yeah, I I kind of loved it. I, I don't think it's necessarily like the best 90s horror film to come out, but it was just very enjoyable. And I like how it kind of established its own mythos. Uh, and it, it just kind of was very thought provoking in that regard. I liked the world building in it. Another one that I watched recently was Norma Ray. I don't think I've heard of that. So uh, I ended up watching it because it is about this. Um, factory that unionized and kind of the process for how that went down. And the original story actually uh, took place in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. And I have some family from that area. So I ended up watching that recently. The film itself does not actually kind of have any concrete North Carolina setting. It never says it's in North Carolina and it was shot in Alabama. But uh, it still kind of told the the story of, of the titular Norma Ray. So that one, I think, is highly worth watching. I cool. think you should check that one out, especially. Okay. Particularly being from North Carolina. Yeah, I had a cousin that lived in uh, that area for a while. <laughs> oh, nice. 
Yeah, I, I spent many a summer there back in the day. Um, so those that's mostly what I watched recently. Uh, yeah, because the the final destinations one kept <laughs> those yeah. kept me busy for a Five while. Five movies. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and I haven't like you. I, I haven't picked up anything on on physical copy, uh, but there were a couple decent looking Blu rays coming out soon. I can't remember if this one has actually come out or or it's just kind of uh, going too soon. But um, there, uh, I think, is going to be a good release of there was thirteen ghosts and Event Horizon. Oh, I can't remember if those have actually come out yet or or going to, but it's like. Those might be nice to add to my collection. Yeah, I don't remember a ton about the 13 Ghosts remake, except for thinking that Matthew, Matthew Lillard's in that, right? I think so. I just remember thinking, I always thought he was great in pretty much anything, and so I remember thinking it was fun to see him in that. The original movie's pretty cool, too, the original 13 Ghosts. Yeah, and uh, you were correct. Matthew Lillard is in this, as well as Tony Shalhoub, mm. who I, I loved him from Monk. Oh, yeah, right. And now, our feature presentation. And tonight, we are talking about the 1979 Lucio Fulci classic, Zombie 2. This film had a budget of 410 million lira, and it made 3 billion lira at the box office. So it was a pretty solid success. It currently holds a 42% critic rating with a 69% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And the Rotten Tomatoes consensus of the film states zombie two is an absurdly graphic zombie movie legendary for some gory scenes and nothing in between which i'm not sure i would quite agree with that assessment i mean absurdly graphic absolutely and i think it has some (laughs) legendary scenes the nothing in between like i get what they're saying but i think there's a lot more to this movie than meets the eye i think it's just uh one of those movies that is certainly for some people and not for others I 100% agree with that. And like the Rotten Tomatoes critic consensus reads, Zombie 2 was actually listed in the UK as a video nasty. Indeed, one of the infamous video nasties. So tell us, Wes, what is this movie about? So, a mysterious and seemingly abandoned boat drifts into the harbor in New York City. When the Coast Guard go on board to investigate, they are attacked by a monstrous creature that subsequently is subsequently shot and falls into the water. Anne Bowles, played by Tisa Farrow, sister of Mia Farrow, uh, is the daughter of the boat's owner. And, and Peter West, a reporter investigating the story, team up and follow clues in a letter left on board for Anne, leading them on a search for the mysterious island of Matul. They hire the boat of two tourists, Brian and Susan and make their way to the island where they discover a disheartened doctor played by Richard Johnson, a terrified population, and a plague of the living dead. So this was a West pick. Indeed. Why did you pick this film? Oh, my friend. This is a movie that I am borderline obsessed with. 
Uh, as I was thinking about what would be a good movie for us to do next, I realized we've been doing some real critical darlings lately, and I wanted to choose a film that we that I love, but that is certainly not a critical darling, and that is a pretty good description of this movie. Uh, this movie is holds a very special place in my heart. I first discovered this movie kind of when I was coming into my own as a horror fan back in undergrad. Uh, I remember just I was watching a lot of movies and just kind of really opening my mind to all kinds of different horror movies. And somewhere in the uh, along the way, I heard of this movie called Lucio Fulci's Zombie, and I heard it was just absolutely bonkers. And I tracked down a DVD copy of it, and that is 100% correct. This movie is bonkers. I remember just thinking it was so crazy. At the time, I remember just thinking that it, that the the gore and everything was just so visceral and so insane. I'd never seen anything like it before, and it's just it's stuck with me over the years. It's it's always been a favorite of mine. A lot of the imagery uh, has just really stuck with me. Um, uh, it was my gateway drug into Italian horror and Italian genre cinema in general, which is something that I really love now. Um, and just over the years, I've collected various items and bits of paraphernalia related to this movie. I've introduced it to many people, some of whom still tell me that they love it, and some of whom tell me that they never want to see it again. And I just really, really wanted to talk about it. I'm not surprised that there are both of those reactions. Yes. Because regardless of what you think about Zombie 2, it evokes some sort of response. Indeed. And uh, you actually introduced me to this. This was my first time watching oh, this. Yeah. I had heard a lot about it, and I was I was pretty familiar with the with the with the cover art, but I just had not gotten around to seeing this. And uh, I'm really glad that I watched this for a couple reasons. One is that I just had heard so much about it from you as well as some other friends, and also this was my first Lucio Fulci film. Another one bites the dust. And you'd been you'd been telling me I need to to watch some Fulci for a while, so finally made it happen. I am glad you enjoyed it. I knew it was your first uh, Fulci watch, and as I was saying, it's a uh, it's one of those things that could go either way when you introduce uh, someone new to Lucio Fulci. So I'm I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I was uh, on pins and needles wondering for your reaction. And, and I think one of the most intriguing parts about Zombie Two actually starts with. It's a name. Yes. Right. So uh, Night of the Living Dead came out, and then that was followed up by Dawn of the Dead, or as it was released internationally, Zombie. That's right. So even though this is technically called Zombie 2, it actually was released under a lot of different titles. Yeah. And a lot of Fulci's movies, especially his horror stuff, was intentionally made for the international market the they a lot of the italians at that time had figured out you know that they could market a lot of these exploitation films internationally so the international market was foremost in the minds of at least the producers when they were making these kinds of things so because of its success internationally it's been released you know under various titles all across the world and uh, it's a bit of like an unofficial sequel now, my question was to uh, to you is, do you feel like this, did it feel to you like this was set in the same universe? As Dawn of the Dead? Yeah. 
Um, you know, it could be because the zombies, by and large, kind of follow the rules that were set by Romero in terms of what zombies do. They eat flesh and they are killed when you shoot them in the head. Those are two things that George Romero brought us about zombies that had not been a part of the zombie mythology before. So these zombies certainly follow those rules. At the same time, these zombies are much more your classic zombies in that they are, at least possibly, created by voodoo magic. And um, the other thing that really separates these zombies from Romero's zombies is that these zombies feel like they came out of the dirt. I am such a huge Romero fan, so it, I've got nothing bad to say about his um, his dead series of movies. But none of those zombies feel quite like these do in that these zombies look rotted. They look like they have been under the ground, getting eaten by worms and just rotting away. They are disgusting looking. Uh, and so I think in a way they really seem to follow the same rules, but they have a very different look and feel. I uh, absolutely agree with that. And uh, one thing I appreciated quite a bit about Zombie 2 was the way that it did kind of capture that same uh, Romero zombie vibe yeah. while also kind of bringing the genre back to its voodoo roots. Right. Yeah. Because pre uh, prior to Night of the Living Dead, the concept of zombie was mostly from kind of voodoo culture. Uh, and actually, I think a film that really tackles that well is The Serpent and the Rainbow. I think it's Wes Craven's yeah. most underappreciated film. Yeah, very underappreciated. Yeah, I don't know that I'd necessarily say it's his best film. No. But I would say it's his most underappreciated. Uh, and then that was something I was actually thinking about a lot while I was watching Zombie 2 is in dawn of the dead as well as night of the living dead the the kind of gross out moments are mostly when a zombie is eating someone yeah but in this the zombies themselves just looking at them they're they're very grisly and they have all this mud caked on yeah. and it does seem like they climbed out of the dirt which would make sense right because they're yeah. the living dead they have climbed out of graves they're not going to just kind of emerge pristine so i, I felt like the, the effects department really nailed it yeah and i think in you know at one point in the um in one of the romero movies i think it's night of the living dead you'd think i'd know as many times as i've watched that recently but they mentioned the you know in those movies they say specifically the recently dead and so maybe that's why they don't look quite as eaten up whereas these zombies seem ancient and i mean in, in one point very prominently we get to see the rotted desiccated corpses of a bunch of spanish conquistadors coming back to life so yeah they are much more ancient feeling oh the the conquistador scene oh yeah cracked me up yeah, it's great yeah so uh essentially uh they're they stumble into this uh conquistador graveyard and even though there is they have this full-on knowledge that the dead are rising again they just kind of are curious they're like oh look a conquistador graveyard yeah 
Uh, in fact, two of the characters think that that's the ideal time to hook up. Yeah, uh, Anne and Peter are just making out. And I was yep. like, really, guys? You're making out in a graveyard while you're also trying to escape zombies. And at this point, Peter has injured his foot pretty mm-hmm. severely. Yep. Uh, in a car th- crash caused by hitting a zombie. Like, in a car crash caused by hitting a zombie. And then they're like, well, we're in a cemetery. Let's make out. Yeah, you know, from the onset, as soon as Anne and Peter met, oh yeah, uh, they uh, Peter's just pouncing on Anne. So she uh, goes to visit her father's boat, right? That's abandoned in in the New York City Harbor, and Peter is reporting on this story, and he happens to be on the boat, so he covers her mouth so she won't scream and then when uh, a police officer starts coming he's like i have an idea and the police officer walks in and it cuts to them just making out and i was like really really that's your pickup line that's plan hey it worked well it it did it (laughs) apparently it worked because you know in the third act when they're in a conquistador graveyard uh they decide to uh, to play uh you know And what a and what a passionate kiss it is! <laughs> oh yes, you know if only it weren't interrupted by a zombie hand emerging from the earth. Uh, it's another one of those images, though, that, from this movie that I, I really love. That that hand slowly creeping up past a lot of lot of great zombie hand work in this movie. Yeah, there were some phenomenal shots of zombie hands. Another another one of those was when Dr. Menard's wife yes. gets gets killed and there's a zombie trying to open uh, uh, up the door of the room that she's in and she's mostly closed up, but the fingers are caught in between oh, the door yeah. and the frame and she ends up slamming the door shut and it cuts the fingers off. You know, it's funny. I watched this movie twice um, this week. The first time was on uh, VHS, like a kind of a, you know, an older <laughs> VHS copy. And like uh, the, it, it was much darker and grainier. And and in that version, you couldn't even at first really tell what, sh- what was cl- causing the door not to close, which was kind of neat. Like it, it was, everything was very dark and she's trying to close the door and you can't really tell what's, what's causing it not to work out. And then you see those fingers, which was pretty cool. Um, and then I watched it again on the 4k restoration blu-ray, which was a totally different experience. Oh yeah. But that had a lot more color depth to it for sure. But you know, what was funny? I thought you were going to say the scene right before that, when, um, Mrs. Menard is in the shower and you see her in the shower and then you look out kind of through the window and you see this zombie hand, like come up and kind of not really wrap on the window, but just like wrap its fingers lightly on the window, which was a pretty striking moment to me. Yeah, that was another really, really good scene. And then yeah. uh, I think another excellent example of this would just be at the end when there's the showdown at the church. Yeah. Where Dr. Menard is holed up and conducting his experiments on the zombies. Yeah. And there are a bunch of zombie heads popping up in the in the windows as... Uh, everyone scrambles to try to shut the windows and you see some zombie hands poking through. Yeah. So I, I liked that quite a bit. And actually I loved that scene in the Conquistador graveyard with all the heads emerging from the dirt as well. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. The imagery is amazing. There's some very striking imagery in here. Yeah. Uh, 
And so I'm kind of curious, did you have any favorite scenes? Well, you know, I feel like the scene that is my favorite is not necessarily one of the first. There's a handful of scenes that always get discussed in this from this movie, three in particular. But honestly, my favorite scene is the one we were just discussing, which is the scene in the um, in the Conquistador graveyard. I just I've always been a real sucker in zombie zombie movies for images of the undead like coming up through the earth. You know what I mean? In a lot of movies, it doesn't even necessarily make sense because you're like, wouldn't they be buried deeper and like in caskets and stuff like how are they getting out but in this movie i always get the impression that we were like the implication is that they were in they were in somewhat makeshift graves and so maybe it was easier for them to get out through the dirt and it's just that scene of all of those um zombie hands and then later on zombie heads coming up out of the dirt and they're attacking all these people and you get the iconic worm-eyed zombie uh which is the image that drew myself and legions of other Fulci fans to this movie is just that image. It's on all the, uh, the box art and things like that for, for zombie, uh, that worm eyed zombie just always really stuck with me. And just that, that scene in the conquistador graveyard is, is a real winner for me. And it's my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And again, to kind of juxtapose this with, the Romero zombie Romero zombies almost seem like they just kind of put on a bit of makeup yeah. to change their complexion. Whereas the zombies in Fulci zombie two feel gritty and it, there's kind of a realism to it. It were at least a realism if zombies existed, sure. right? Because they would climb out of the ground and they'd be decaying and, yeah, you know, they'd have worms climbing out of their eye socket or something. So yeah. yeah. It was it's very visceral imagery that kind of sticks with you I think a little bit more than the Romero zombies. And I think that has a lot to do with the maybe the personality of the filmmakers and also the fact that granted Romero much to his credit, as we've said already, basically created the concept of the flesh-eating zombie. Um, so, you know, he's kind of trying to figure out what what exactly should they look like. You know, in, in Night of the Living Dead, they obviously look way less made up. They just look, well, they're the recently dead, so they just kind of look like people that came straight out of a funeral home or something. And then in Dawn of the Dead, he's got to deal with the color situation, so then they're like blue-skinned ghouls and things like that. But uh, Romero always seemed to me a, a much more light-hearted individual, having a lot more fun, whereas... Fulci definitely had a very macabre nature to him, to his films. And so I think that comes through in the sort of tenor of this movie. Uh, And you get a much different feel than the Romero zombie. You get a much more nasty zombie here. And I'm kind of curious what you mentioned that there were three other scenes that there are three scenes that get discussed quite a bit. And I'm kind of curious what those are. I will be glad to go into it, but first I wanted to hear what your favorite scene from this film was. Uh, I'm going to predict that it's one of those three. I but it was the it, <laughs> it was the underwater zombie. Yeah, I scene. thought that might be the case <laughs> because <laughs> I mean that just was a completely and totally off the wall segment. Oh, yeah. but it it just kind of worked. So even before you're introduced to the underwater zombie. This scene gets pretty kooky. So, yeah. so, uh, so Susan decides that she is going to go scuba diving or um, 
Yeah, scuba diving, yeah. and that she's going to take some underwater photography. So to do so, she strips down right. to nothing but a thong. As you do. And it, it, even Peter, it, like, you know, kind of gets caught looking at her. Oh, yeah, he's I, just, I was cracking up. Yeah. Uh, he, he uh, his eyes were kind of glued to her. So then she goes in the water, and you kind of knew something was going to happen. Yeah. So a shark shows up. Yep, of course. <laughs> and it was like, right, okay, shark. Makes sense, you know. Susan goes in the water. Sharks in the water. Uh, our shark. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, please. As much as we both love Jaws, oh, yeah. you need to get this reference. I definitely it's- did. So then the shark shows up and I'm thinking, all right, Kennedy, that was going to happen. So as Susan's hiding from the shark, a zombie appears and attacks her. And then you get this brilliant scene where the shark and an underwater zombie battle battle it out underwater. Yeah. (laughs) And I got to say, the underwater cinematography was actually phenomenal yeah and then one thing i learned after the fact i didn't know this going in was since there was no cg of course at the time they used a real tiger shark absolutely yeah and the trainer ramon bravo he apparently had fed the shark right before they shot that scene and it was also very heavily sedated and it turns out that he was actually the underwater zombie. Yeah. And that's the story that I believe, by the way. I've heard a couple different stories about this shark, but that's the story that I that I think is seems the more reasonable because Ramon Bravo, as you just mentioned, was a fairly famous diver, underwater photographer and filmmaker, which by the way, that's the reason why the underwater cinematography looks so great, because Ramon Bravo uh did the underwater uh, filming. You know, so he's a pro he's well known for that and also well-known shark trainer um so i think that that's probably the real story that he that he was the shark's trainer that he fed the shark that they sedated the shark um i even heard some people say that maybe the shark had had its teeth removed you can see some teeth but when it when it swims towards them at one point it doesn't really have a mouthful of uh teeth like you'd expect um but the other story that I've heard, which I tend not to believe, but I think is really funny, is in interviews I heard people talk about how they sat out there for like two or three days trying to catch a shark, like baiting it, like fishing for a shark. And they finally caught the shark and they like worked it around and made it like swim laps around the boat until it got tired out. And then they shot the scene after they had tired the shark out, but that they had like caught it in the ocean, which I, I tend not to believe that story, but it, it was pretty interesting, I thought. I almost want to believe that one, yeah. but I I think the uh, Ramon Bravo yeah, version I mean, is a little bit more plausible. Because would Ramon Bravo be there? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> he's so yeah, yeah. And you'd have to get pretty lucky, I feel like, to kind of bait a shark into cooperating right. <laughs> to yes. film a scene. It's not like yes. you're paying. It's not like uh, you're paying that shark. I don't think they have a union or anything. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> Well, I don't know. They might. Uh, but yeah, because as, as zany as that scene is, it just sort of worked. Yeah. Oh, yes, for sure. Um, that scene is... So I've mentioned that I've introduced this movie to many friends over the years. And whenever I talk about it, almost always the question that gets asked is, oh, yeah, is that the one with the zombie and the shark? 
I mean, it definitely is the thing that stands out to people. I think about this movie. Um, yeah, it's just, I think it's wonderful. I, I just think that scene, when I saw that, I was like, what is this world of Italian genre cinema that I'm entering into? How crazy and amazing is that? And it's not like it becomes significant later on. It just kind of no. happens and it's then it's over. Perfect. I mean, a perfect example of exploitation filmmaking. Do we think that the audience will freak out to see a zombie fight a shark? Yes, put it in the film. Uh, but famously, of course, uh, Lucia Fulci was actively opposed to that scene's inclusion, uh, refused to shoot it. And so a second uh, a second unit crew was brought in uh, to shoot the zombie versus shark scene because Fulci was just like, nope, not going to film that. I think I would have still enjoyed the film quite a bit, even without that scene. Yeah. But I don't know that I would have enjoyed it as much as I ultimately did with the scene in there. It's certainly one of the things that is remembered most about this film. Uh, we were talking earlier about the Avon Press um, uh, zombie comics, and one edition of one of their zombie comics came with a uh, artist-drawn poster of the zombie fighting the shark, which is I thought was pretty cool. Uh, it's very uh, definitely a scene that is remembered from this film. Another interesting tidbit is that Aretta Gay, who played Susan, when she was hired, she was explicitly asked if she could swim. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm a great swimmer. I can swim. Couldn't swim a lick. So when she got on set, uh, couldn't swim at all. Somebody tried to teach her how to swim, but they uh, were not a very good swimmer either. And apparently there were all kinds of uh, uh, hijinks trying to shoot this scene where I wish I could remember the whole story. Uh, it's talked about a little bit on on the Blu-ray, but apparently at one point, a large number of the crew, sort of like uh, the cast and crew, sort of like Domino's, almost drowned because Aretta Gay started drowning and somebody came in to try to save her and then they started drown uh, almost drowning and then somebody else came in and they almost started drowning and apparently Fulci was just sitting there being like, what is happening? <laughs> and of course, he, did, he didn't get in. Oh, <laughs> uh, wow. That, I mean, you know, I feel like it just fits with that scene. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, it was a real mess to shoot. But came out beautifully. And as you said, the underwater cinematography is amazing. It looks gorgeous. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, that is that's a that's a very complex scene to pull off with yeah. no CG. Like of yeah. course it's not going to be trouble free. Uh but kind of speaking a, uh, a little bit more about the effects, they are absolutely phenomenal across the board. Yeah. And this film had uh yeah, I'm not quite sure of the lira to us dollars conversion but it had kind of a modest budget yeah it did yeah it, it it was it was a pretty pretty modest budget especially for things like effects like if you listen to interviews with the the crew they talk about you know just how inventive the team of uh effects artists and makeup artists which I, I regret that I don't remember all of their names. I mean, you know, obviously they're credited on IMDb and you can look, look them up. But by all accounts, Fulci had assembled this like stellar crew of people who were able to make these movies so visually striking on a shoestring budget. But the, the one name that came up most of all uh, in terms of the makeup effects was uh, Gianetto, Gianetto De Rossi, who uh, worked on a, a large number of films. And... Fulci has been dubbed the Italian godfather of gore. And Indeed. I mean, granted, I've only seen one Fulci film, but basing it off of Zombie 2, you think he's well-deserving of that title? Yes. Uh, City of the Living Dead and the, and the Beyond 
both continue this sort of very visceral uh, stuff. You know, I was reminded of um, in our conversation about Dario Argento's Deep Red earlier this year, you commented more than once about how, you know, he has all this explicit violence, but then just as a human would probably look away at some point, the camera would look away, you know, at just the right moment. And the thing to me that really strikes the difference for Lucia Fulci is I feel like at the time when other people would look away, Fulci does not look away. You see everything with Fulci, uh, which you were asking me about what are the other scenes that get most discussed in this movie, uh, which that, that idea of not looking away brings me to obviously another scene from this movie that's most discussed, which is the splinter through the eye scene. Oh, that was really tough to watch. It is very tough to watch, especially for anybody who has an eye thing. So uh, kind of a running theme through Fulci's horror movies after the success of this shot would be uh, ocular violence. And this was sort of his gateway into ocular violence in his movies. But there is a scene where uh, Mrs. Menard meets her end by that zombie you mentioned earlier she actually cuts its fingers off by slamming the door on it she thinks she's safe and for some reason she leans back on this wooden door and the zombie just busts a hole through the door grabs her by the hair and slowly drags her onto a splintered piece of wood that goes into her eye and we as the audience are treated to the entire experience of that splinter slowly going into her eye sinking into her brain and then breaking off in her skull as she's dragged through the through the door it is uh really something to see and and that's one of those moments where i just feel like almost any other filmmaker i could think of would probably have turned the camera away at the last moment but Fulci's just like nope show it all yeah because that's one of those that was just one of those moments where uh, it was intriguing to me because it was a so drawn out yes it it seems to take an eternity for this this incredibly large splinter is a pretty sizable chunk of wood to penetrate her eye but then the other thing was, it almost seemed to suggest, I think accidentally, that zombies have some sort of, in this universe at least, have some sort of reasoning capabilities, because it's not like it was trying to eat her in that instance, it was just trying to kill her with a splinter. You know, it's interesting, um, I my take on that has always been that it was pure accident, that he was just dragging her through there, and it just happened to be that her eye lined up perfectly with that splinter and killed her, but you're not the only person I think that gets that reading, once again, going back to the Avon press um, comics in those comics, they also, at least in the sequel series, um, they also ascribe some rationality to certain of the zombies. So other people have had that reading as well. That was just kind of the way that it seemed to me, because it felt like if there, if the zombie were just trying to get to her, maybe it would have tried to go through the door or pull her through the door. And that seemed very intentional. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting. So one one thing that I really loved about Zombie 2 was the way that it blended genres so well. And yeah. I think that's something you wouldn't really be able to grasp simply by looking at the box art because you would just assume, okay, this is a straightforward horror film. It's a zombie flick, which, yes, it is both of those, but it actually kind of incorporates sort of a sci-fi and supernatural element as well. And is kind of a good 
solid adventure mystery thriller. Yeah. I think it's one of the things that makes this movie special. Uh, I've always loved adventure stories. And I think one of the things that makes this movie special is the combination of adventure elements with the horror. I just, I'm with you on that. I I just think that's one of the things that sets this movie apart. Um, And I think that, you know, uh, Dardano Sacchetti is uh, one of the, he's actually uncredited, but he was one of the writers uh, with his wife, I'm going to mess up her name. I know her last name is Briganti. Her first name is either Elsa or Eliza, but it's, uh, but they wrote it together. Uh, And apparently the initial idea for the film was brought to him by producers based on a comic book that they had read where it was a a Western because, you know, Westerns were super popular in, in Italian genre cinema and it was a Western, but it had zombies in it. And so they wanted him to shoot a Western with zombies in it, which he, which he told he informed them was not possible, which I think is funny because how many things like that have we seen today? Um, most recently, most recently, not quite zombies, but most recently, uh, Bone Tomahawk obviously is a, a horror western combo. And in Red possible. Dead Redemption, I think yeah. it was there was like a zombies undead nightmare. In, yeah, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. But he at the time apparently he just thought it was not possible. But he did decide to make a combo adventure zombie movie which i think is really cool yeah i thought it blended incredibly well because i mean it kind of starts off with this well actually the opening scene is is really striking uh you you basically see someone under a this sheet who you're assuming is a zombie and then some kind of shadowy figure shoots them in the head and says the boat can leave now tell the crew yeah and then it cuts to this abandoned sailboat going through yep. uh in new york city yep. going through the harbor and for, even from the onset it kind of establishes that mystery vibe of like okay so who who is that person who just killed what was presumably a zombie whose boat is this and then you end up finding out that it's uh ann's father's boat and she and Peter end up kind of uh, going in search of Matul to figure out what exactly happened to her father. Uh, and so th- you sort of uh, explore through through their quest. One, except one area, I'm kind of curious what you thought about this, uh, but one area that I thought was a little underdeveloped was the, the Dr. Menard subplot. Well, so it's interesting. Um, I think and I'm not alone in this, that Richard Johnson is, he's definitely the shining star in terms of acting in this movie. Richard Johnson, I mostly remember him from his role in the original um, black and white version of The Haunting, which he was great in. But um, he really lent a lot of gravitas to this. And I think in terms of his, of that character, that character has more depth of characterization than any other character in the film in in my opinion and i think a lot of that came from richard johnson allegedly when he was so one thing to know about richard johnson is that he loved making italian genre cinema which is kind of funny he was known as like a, a stage actor and he'd had quite an extensive career in film as well and but apparently any uh in an interview that i heard with him he said that his manager or his agent told him would you like to go to the caribbean and shoot an italian zombie film and he said of course he just apparently he loved doing uh doing those kind of movies but so the score the script was given and fulci had a great 
deal of admiration for Richard Johnson as well. Um, but when he was given the script, apparently he, you know, it was not written by people whose first language was English. And so he, um, made quite a few, uh, changes to his character and, and, uh, you know, worked with the dialogue and apparently even improvised quite a bit, which is amazing that, you know, Fulci would let him do that. But, um, in terms of what you're saying about the backstory of that character, I will confess that I, Every time I've ever watched this movie, I've been so distracted by all the insane visuals and set pieces that I have never thought about that as much. But this time I found myself considering that character. And I wonder, and other people have commented on this as well, if that wasn't, you never know what was done intentionally and what was just a happy mistake. But it seems to me like there is some mystery and some ambiguity behind that maybe we're left to interpret behind whether his character is a villain or a hero. Um, and I thought that was very fascinating because he presents himself this whole time as a, you know, as this doctor who's just this plague, this mysterious plague has broken out on this island and he's just doing everything he can to try to discover, you know, what causes it, possibly find a cure for it. But when you first meet his delirious wife, she accuses him of, of doing something, you know, wicked of doing something immoral with his experiments and she she even threatens to expose him and we never really hear much else about that but you almost get the impression that she blames him for what's going on uh, but he never seems to to bear any any blame or anything like that either and i was curious what what you thought about that if you had any thoughts about that i had a lot of thoughts about that that's sort of why i brought it up yeah. and yeah richard johnson just really captivated me with his performance and I thought he sort of stole the show because yes. he just really more than any other character provided a much needed depth. And I was really confused as well, because when his wife is talking, uh, Mrs. Menard is kind of going on about how, about his experiments and saying, she said something to the effect of, you still call yourself a doctor. And so I kind of assumed he was going to be a villain, but then once he gets to the church that he has converted into his makeshift hospital, he has a bunch of zombies tied down and is performing some sort of experiments, including combining his blood with zombie blood, I guess, to kind of see the effects of what would happen if you combine an, an infected patient's blood with a non-infected patient yeah but yeah it was just very unclear and i couldn't figure out if that was like some sort of editing mistake or, or script mistake or if it was intentional to try to make you as the audience member question dr menard's motives but i i did regard either way i really appreciated it because i I think it added this sort of mystique about that character. Uh, and um, I think my take is probably that he was some sort of at least attempted hero. Yeah, I get that as well. That's what I've always thought too. But but here's an interesting thing that I'll, that I'll bring to your attention that I had obviously never considered. And I'm with you on that. It, with these movies, I'm not going to sit here, even though I'm a massive Fulci fan, I'm not going to sit here and say that these movies are not in some ways flawed and that in places the plots and narratives sometimes don't 
a hundred percent line up and make sense. But so that it, it could have just been a happy accident. But if so, I do think like you that it was a happy accident because I enjoy kind of the mystery and and the ambiguity behind that character. One thing that I had never thought of before, and I was listening to the commentary and Troy Howarth, who's a a Fulci scholar, um, was commenting on the scene when. Dr. Menard is talking to Lucas and Lucas says something about, and I don't know which one of them says it, but they, they're talking about all the, the, the people on the Island being all riled up and going into the, into the jungles and into the interiors practicing voodoo. And they talk about how there's a witch doctor who's kind of the cause of all this. And Troy Howarth mentioned that it's very possible that the Islanders think that Dr. Menard is a witch doctor and that maybe they're talking about him. So I wondered if possibly his work or his experiments had caused the outbreak and he just wasn't even aware of it. So maybe he's both. Maybe he is the cause inadvertently and now he's trying to resolve it and he might not even be aware that it's his own thing. It's just a really – I just really think that's an interesting question that is left to us, the viewer, to decide. Or another, even another possibility to sort of dovetail off of that is perhaps he did kind of cause this zombie outbreak unwittingly. And that's one of the reasons that he's so motivated to put it to an end because he's not sure how he started it. He just knows that he did. And now he's looking for some sort of cure. Which I thought was pretty cool. I thought it was pretty cool that the that the cause of the zombies is left. Is it a, a freak of science? Is it a, a or is it voodoo magic? I mean, what is it? We don't know. And I I like that because that was one of the several qualities of Zombie Two that really differentiates itself from other zombie films of the time. Is that yeah. most of the others there is some sort of well established cause for the outbreak. And yeah. in this, you're sort of put in the position to decide for yourself. Yeah. Is it science? Is it voodoo? Is it a combination? And I dig that. I do as well. So with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will keep discussing Zombie 2.
Hey guys, we are back and we are talking about the 1979 Lucio Fulci classic Zombie 2. So this was a pretty fascinating film insofar as how it was shot. Yeah. So Fulci was very well known for shooting in America sans film permits. Yeah. So there's a scene... Uh, in the final moments of the film where there is this horde of zombies and they're ambling across the Brooklyn Bridge into New York. And they're just going across the bridge. And if you look closely, you can actually see cars continuing to go by underneath. Yeah. Because Fulci did not obtain the rights to actually block off the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's no way that he would have had the resources to do that. Um, Fulci famously loved, he loved America. He loved America, and he loved shooting in America, and he shot quite a lot of his horror movies here. Um, I was also, I was pleased to hear in one of the interviews his daughter comment that he particularly loved the South. Um, Being from the South, I'm glad to hear that. But uh, the... He he loved doing that, but I think this might have been one of his. I, I don't. I could be wrong, but this is one of the first instances I know of where they basically just took a crew over to America and just set up without permits and shot a great deal of footage. Uh, but yeah, famously that last scene going with all the zombies, and I mean it's a horde of zombies going across the Brooklyn Bridge. The story behind that reminds me a lot of the. Uh, uh, what you and I have often talked about with the movie night of the comet, where they would just kind of show up early in the morning before there was a lot of traffic to get the look of like desolate streets, uh, going on. Uh, the story of this is that they, they had this, well, they were worried they weren't gonna be able to get the shot basically. And they were just like, well, let's see what we can do. So apparently they just, they showed up early in the morning on the Brooklyn bridge they didn't want to show up with like a horde of pre-made up zombies. So they apparently just showed up with the the most minimal crew they could. They made the zombies up on the spot. They took about 15, 20 minutes to just apply as much makeup as they could to these zombies and then just got the shot and marched them across the bridge before anybody could show up and tell them that they couldn't. And, you know, I, I love that guerrilla style filmmaking like that. Me too. And, I'm glad you brought up Night of the Comet because when I read about how that scene was shot, it totally reminded me of Night of the Comet and seeing abandoned L.A. uh, And in Night of the Comet, apparently a lot of those scenes were just filmed at five in the morning or something when there's no traffic. Yeah. I wish that there had been, I wish that the traffic had cooperated with Fulci and company a little bit better, as you pointed out. But uh, I think that's a pretty small, it doesn't take away that much from the scene. Uh, the scene itself is very iconic. The scene of these these zombies ambling into New York City, presumably to take over the whole city. Yeah. And also, I don't really think the kind of cars whizzing by underneath detracted from that because... Uh, of a couple of reasons. One, I don't think it's super noticeable. If you're looking for it, you can see it. But I think you're uh, by nature of how that scene is captured, your eye is naturally drawn to the 
zombies shuffling across the Brooklyn Bridge. But then the other uh, quality is I think it kind of lends the sense and the radio broadcast seems to somewhat support this, that it's kind of early on in the zombie uh, uh, epidemic. That's how I've always interpreted it as well, is that, you know, maybe people just hadn't realized yet what's going on. I mean, you know, if somebody came up to you and was like, hey, there's zombies, you got to get out of here. You'd probably be like, whatever, I'm going to work. I mean, you know, like, so, yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't think it really detracts from that. And um, there is another version of the shot. So that first version, you can see the cars. There's another version of the shot as the actual credits are going uh, across the screen um, that actually you can only see cars leaving New York City pretty much. So I also think that shot is a little bit more powerful because it looks like people are just piling out of New York trying to get away. And then there's kind of that lingering question of how widespread the zombie outbreak is and if it's going to spread outside of new york so yeah that that that's a powerful shot oh go ahead i was just gonna say for which you would have to tune into the much inferior sequel zombie 3 to find out <laughs> which i have not seen so maybe you can shed some light on that but one okay. other uh one other scene that i read about was ian mcculloch has apparently stated on the dvd commentary that at the beginning of the film, there are some Harbor Patrol cops, and they were actually off-duty policemen. Yeah. Um, and it saved them from having to even get uniforms made up. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, so on the commentary, tra- the other commentary track had Troy Haworth, who I've talked about already, and he he brought up a point that in his in his opinion, so he said, now he's a, he has written books about Fulci's work, so he's done quite a bit of research. And he said he's never been able to track down these two guys. He doesn't know anything about them, doesn't even know their names. So he, he said it's entirely possible that they were real off-duty cops, but he made a great point, which is that he believes that only one of them was. He thinks the older one was because there's a scene a little bit later on where the younger cop, that kind of has the longer hair and everything. You see him in an interior shot, like in the the morgue when they're doing the autopsy on him, and he's kind of made up in zombie makeup. And uh, he was pointing out that, you know, a lot of the interiors were actually shot in Rome. The exteriors were shot on location, and the interiors were shot in Rome. So it, it was his belief that maybe only one of those cops, the older one that you don't see in the interiors, was an off-duty police officer, and the other one might have been sort of a bit actor that that they brought along to shoot the scene. Oh, that sounds like a cool commentary track. Yeah, he, oh, he's got tons. Of, he's, he wrote um, at least one, maybe two books about Fulci's work, so he knows everything about <laughs> the movie. And then uh, kind of a, a little bit of a different anecdote about the filming of this movie, but Captain Haggerty, who portrays the bald-headed zombie at the beginning of the film that's found on the sailboat he supposedly walked into cbgb this very famous punk rock bar and he was decked out with the caked on fake blood and mud and he went basically unnoticed because (laughs) because at the time the punk rock outfits were kind of so gaudy and outlandish that everyone just thought he was super into the punk scene particularly at this time i mean when this was going on the misfits were you know doing their whole horror punk thing so i mean you know uh, the misfits had already married punk rock and horror movies together anyway so i I could definitely see that i love stories like that being a punk rock dude myself i uh 
I think stories like that are always really funny. Yeah, no, they probably just thought he was he was a fiend. He was a big Misfits yeah, fan. <laughs> I know. I would, it would have been great. I would love to see something like that. Um, interestingly, when you're talking about that scene, another um, funny thing about that opening shot, uh, the opening scene, you you get all these beautiful aerial shots of the boat drifting into New York Harbor, and it really adds a lot of uh, production value. And and you and it looks like it, they look like expensive shots, but once again, keeping up with the whole guerrilla guerrilla filmmaking style. Um, Sergio Salvati, the uh, director of photography, basically told Fulci, he's like, I think I can get the aerial shots we need. And he went and rented a helicopter. Like there was a thing where you could just get rental, rented helicopter rides around the city. And he went and rented a helicopter, went up by himself with a handheld camera and just shot those shot those scenes from the rented helicopter. <laughs> and they worked out beautifully. That's brilliant. And yeah. hearing little stories like that, I think just gives you a deeper appreciation for this film i think it's one of the things that that makes fulci movies so special to me is that they there is a certain low budget b movie quality to them but just the ingenuity of the crew and fulci would work with lot with most of these people repeatedly sergio salvati uh uh, uh dardano sacchetti uh, a lot of these people were he worked with them quite a bit because they they gave him what he needed with the resources he had and all those stories about just the the, the genius little ways that they came up with exactly what they needed and also fulci put his actors through hell a lot of times too like a lot of the shots that you see that look like they would have been terrible for the actors to shoot they were uh but but he just he he put he got what he needed from people. I mean, I can't imagine that being covered in all of the uh, fake mud and the, and the fake blood would be very comfortable. Famously. Um, so for this movie, those were real worms in the uh, worm zombies eye. And apparently the longer that he had to wear those worms, they kept like getting free and trying to crawl into his mouth and his nose and stuff like that. Um, which can have been a very pleasant experience. That sounds disgusting. Yeah. We'll, uh, this probably, spoiler alert, this probably won't be the last Fulci movie we talk about in our uh, career on this podcast, but uh, another story from a different film uh, is that he, Fulci, there's a famous scene in one of his movies where there's all these maggots flying through the air, and uh, apparently Fulci just really loved making the actors in that scene stand there and get maggots blown on them by a, by a, a, a big fan just blowing maggots on them. <laughs> uh, so, you know, as kind of bonkers as a lot of scenes and, and effects in this movie are, you know, there was only one thing that slightly took me out of the film and it was, uh, Peter's character because he so he's supposed to be a reporter and you know what he does absolutely none of in this film <laughs> yeah. reporting he spends most of the time just snogging you know and yeah yeah uh it, you know I was like what does he uh, is he actually employed as a reporter the one thing I'll say about that is in Fulci's Hitchcockian cameo, uh, Fulci often cast himself in little roles in his movies, and he plays the uh, newspaper editor that sends Peter on this assignment. But there is a moment when he comments on, you know, just because your dad owns the paper doesn't mean you can put all that British in your prose. So, I mean, I guess, you know, Peter's dad owns the paper, so maybe he can kind of slack a little bit. 
I guess because he really he absolutely does not. That's funny. I never thought do, about that. He doesn't do any reporting, and You're it just. Right. I was just cracking up the whole time. And you know, it's funny anyway, like he, he got sent to report on a story about this mysterious boat and this cop getting killed on a boat in New York Harbor. And then somehow he's like, you know what? I met this girl and like, she got this mysterious letter from her dad saying he was sick on this Island. And I think I'm going to go with her to the Dominican Republic. Is that cool? And his editors are just like, yeah, go for it. I mean, you know, the whole thing's kind of, kind of strange. Yeah, I'm I'm going to assume that they put that on the company card. Oh, I'm sure. Let's just be honest. He's he's going down there trying to chase Anne down there. Oh, yeah. No, that, he was not chasing a story. No. He, he was Oh, <laughs> that he was. <laughs> that he 100% was. Uh so one one of my favorite aspects of this film and I think something that pairs really well with the on-screen visuals was the soundtrack. Oh, yes. Absolutely. So uh, I'm kind of curious. I thought this had a bit of a goblin feel to it. And you might be able to kind of give a little bit more insight having seen a lot of Fulci films and accordingly heard a lot of uh, Fabio Fritzi, Fritzi scores. Yeah. I mean, so as I mentioned in our deep red episode, when we were talking about scores, Fabio Fritzi is my favorite film composer. Uh, his something about his music. And particularly when I first saw this movie, um, the theme song to this movie just like worked its way into my brain and just stayed there forever. I, I, hearing the theme song for this movie just changed the way that I listen to movie scores. Um, it has a certain kind of like low budget, lo-fi feel to it, but in a really endearing way um, to me. So uh, Fabio Fritzi is my favorite film composer. I've listened to a lot of his scores. Um, I try to collect as many of them as I can. And um, yeah, I, I've heard other people make the the comparison to Goblin. Uh I suppose probably I never hear that quite as much because I was familiar with Fritzy before I was really familiar with Goblin. Um, I, you know, I, I knew the Suspiria theme and I knew the zombie theme, but I, I explored the, the Fritzy stuff before I really explored the Goblin stuff. But certainly I think what that comes from is a, them all just kind of being in the same circles. I mean, you know, I've listened to enough interviews to know that they knew each other. Fritzy knew the people in Goblin and Fritzy worked some with Ennio Morricone. I mean, you know, they were just involved in the Italian film scene. Um, but also just, they kind of come from a similar musical place. Uh, that whole prog rock scene was, was big at the time. I know that they're all big fans of like King Crimson and bands like that. So you kind of have that prog rock root that kind of makes them sound sort of similar, I suppose. And also, as I was pointing out to you earlier, uh, you know, probably not coincidentally, Maurizio uh, Guarini from Goblin played on the the score for Zombie. He was one of the musicians that that helped helped play the on the score for Zombie. Yeah, so I, I kind of agree with a few of the things you just said there about kind of why it has a similar vibe. Um, but at the same time, it does feel distinct and, uh, I, I pretty much loved every bit of music in this film. I I think the main title was, was definitely kind of the most striking because it has this very rhythmic, almost kind of like a heart 
upbeat. Funny story tone about that to it. Uh, Fritzy claims that that if you listen to it, it really kind of doesn't sound like a real bass drum or even an electronic drum machine bass drum. Fulci, uh, Fulci, Fritzy claims that there that that was uh, that sound that bass was created by tapping the palm of his hand on a microphone. That is incredibly inventive. Yeah, I, th- I always think that's kind of interesting. I would have never thought that, but the more I've listened to it, the more it really does kind of sound like that. And then there's that kind of ominous sounding, almost chorus, like this eerie chorus over top. Which is Fritzy's trademark, basically. So the instrument that he's using there is called a Mellotron, and it played like, um, it was used pretty famously by a lot of prog rock and also by the Beatles, uh, who Fritzy's a fan of. And um, you could get all kinds of sounds with a Mellotron, um, but the one that Fritzy seems to go back to over and over again is this deep male chorus that's kind of in the low register. And he would refer to that as the, he, he called it the, the voice, the voices of the dead or the chorus of the dead uh, is what he always called that. And that became kind of a signature of his in his horror movie scores. And I mean, you can see why it really did sound like a kind of chorus of zombies mindlessly shuffling towards some, destination yeah and it kind of builds this sense of foreboding as the opening credits are are rolling and i thought that kind of theme continued throughout uh the music just kind of fit whatever scene that it was in i also kind of liked a lot the uh score when they actually got to matul It, it was a little bit more timpani heavy yeah and it just it, it, the the soundtrack overall i thought was quite varied but still cohesive yeah i agree um and this is sort of fabio fritzi coming into his own he had been a part of a trio uh hopefully i can remember all their names fritzi bixio and tempera who had recorded uh, a lot of scores together including a, ha- a handful of scores for for fulci for the apocalypse silver saddle uh, the Psychic, which is a score that I really think is amazing. Um, but this is the first one that I'm aware of that Fritzi kind of broke off from the group and scored with Fulci himself. It was also both Fulci and Fritzi's first real foray into a straight horror film. And of course, both of them would make their name uh, in horror film throughout the 80s. But uh, you really kind of get Fritzi coming into his own here. And I, I'm with you. I really like, you were talking about that kind of drum-heavy um a song that plays whenever they're on the island which is supposed to kind of mimic the voodoo drums that are playing in the in, that the people have gathered and are playing on the island you know with all this zombie outbreak going on yeah it was very effective and very evocative yeah. now one of my f- few minor complaints about the film and I'm curious if you felt the same way especially early on there were a few scenes that I f- felt just kind of ended abruptly and this not, and not just the scene itself but even the music it just kind of seemed to kind of cut to the next scene and it was only maybe a, a two or three and it was right at the beginning yeah i'm i'm sure that is the case i've seen this movie so many times that i, I probably overlook some of that stuff at this point but um i'm sure that's the case and, and and in other films you know other fulci films as well you can kind of see some kind of abrupt editing at times so uh yeah for sure that's a that's a thing that would happen in these movies and uh fulci's 
narrative structure is also always kind of loosey-goosey. I think this movie is a little more structured than some of his other movies, but, you know, pretty much when you're watching Fulci, especially some of his later movies in his Gates of Hell trilogy, like, you kind of just get this feeling that the narrative is sort of flexible and you kind of are just taken along on this like nightmare vision where maybe things don't fit together in a logical manner and maybe they don't need to uh this movie also i've heard kind of referred to as sort of a surreal film but yeah there there's probably there's definitely some strange abrupt endings to scenes that's kind of uh that's kind of interesting this is actually one that i thought the narrative was very strong throughout i mean there are some kind of surrealist scenes notably the zombie versus shark right face off but uh even that still was part of the overarching narrative and i thought this one was pretty narrative driven yeah this one is and and full and and fulci was not the original director they had in mind for this movie he didn't help he didn't write this movie you know he was much more involved in the writing of the gates of hell movies and so you get movies like city of the living dead and the beyond that are much more dreamlike and nightmarish than zombie yeah i I think zombie is 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 for me personally i think it's a much more straightforward horror movie i've heard some people refer to it in interviews as as being sort of surreal and nightmarish but i think his later work is definitely much more typical of that So you kind of mentioned earlier Zombie 3. Yeah. Can you give us a brief summary of why that film is so inferior to Zombie 2? Well, I think in order to do that, you have to kind of go into what happened with the zombie explosion. Uh, So this movie... um, which we've we we have we have called zombie at times we've called zombie two at times uh if you buy the score on vinyl which i looked for forever you'll see it under the british title of zombie flesh eaters uh it's called it's known by many names as we mentioned earlier but in italy dawn of the dead was released uh as zombie and it was our uh, dario argento owned the rights to the distribution and releasing of it in um in italy that was a, a thing he worked out with George Romero. He helped fund and finance some of the movie and then he owned the rights to the distribution of it in Italy. And so when they decided to market this as zombie two, um, Argento didn't like that. And he took him to court and basically it was determined that you can't copyright zombie. You didn't create that word or that concept. So you can't do that. Uh, and so they won the court case and were able to do that. So then once that happens, the floodgates are open. Uh, zombie movies are coming out left and right out of Italy. You get all kinds of movies, a uh, uh, burial uh, burial ground, and um, you get obviously Zombie Three, as we were talking about earlier. Zombie Four, you get Zombie Holocaust, um, all kinds of zombie movies. Too many of them to name coming out of of Italy at that point. But yeah, so Zombie Three comes many years later, and it is there's been there had been several other films already released trying to call themselves zombie three in various titles and, and should be a, a sequel to this movie. Uh, but the uh, quote unquote official sequel zombie three, I think it came out in 86. Don't quote me, but I think it came out in 86. I could be wrong. And it was Fulci came in. He was, his career had sort of started. It's sort of downward trend there. He was also not in the best of health. And so he, sh- he comes in to the Philippines to shoot zombie three. He 
by his account, was never really super satisfied with the script anyway. He shoots about 75 minutes of the film, and then he leaves. He abandons the project. There's various stories. Some people say he was too ill. It is true that he was in sort of failing health at that point. So some people say he was sick and he left. Fulci himself at times has said, and I've heard other people say, that he had a falling out with the film's producers, just didn't like what was going on, and he just bounced, which I could definitely see from the cantankerous reputation that Fulci had. But for whatever reason, he doesn't finish the film, and the team of Bruno Mattei and Claudio Fergasso are brought in to finish the movie. So I am much less an expert on those two gentlemen's filmography, but uh, they are both known for producing, shall we say, lower quality films lower quality exploitation films bruno Mattei, the first movie that comes to my head uh was his movie shocking dark aka terminator 2 uh which uh is on my list to see i've actually never seen it but by all accounts is a wild mix-up ripoff of alien and terminator uh and then claudio fergasso most people probably who are fans of cult cinema will know him from his bad movie classic troll 2 which let's be honest i've watched and enjoyed countless times uh, but so you get them kind of coming in to finish it, and it's just this weird hodgepodge. It's still credited to Fulci, but it's not really Fulci. It's like some Fulci, some Bruno Mattei, some Claudio Fergasso. It's just a, it's a weird movie. But I own it and enjoy it. But it's just nowhere near the quality of a Zombie Two. So I'm kind of on board with that idea of a Terminator Alien mashup. Shocking I Dark, watch, aka Terminator I would Two. Watch that. Yeah, check that out. It was called Terminator Two before Terminator Two was an actual movie. So, he oh, so that title. <laughs> Terminator Two copied it. In, indeed, sir. Indeed. <laughs> uh, so you kind of mentioned a little bit there that kind of zombie craze. Yes. So, what are your favorite zombie films? Yeah, so my list of favorite zombie films, number one, I've got to give it to the original Night of the Living Dead, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. I've talked about it already in this um, in this podcast. It was a groundbreaking film. I think if you watch Night of the Living Dead, it's just such a great example of filmmaking, narrative construction on a shoestring budget. It's just a masterpiece. I really love the original Night of the Living Dead. So that's number one for me. Number two, we're talking about it. It's Zombie 2 for me. Fulci's Zombie has a special place in my heart, as I've said. I'm borderline obsessed with the film, with the soundtrack. Uh, it, I just really, really love Zombie 2. So number one, Night of Living Dead. Number two, Zombie 2. Number three, I've got to give it to Romero's Day of the Dead. I feel like a lot of people would probably throw Dawn of the Dead up first, and I can see why. But Day of the Dead holds a really special place in my heart. Once again, aided by the wonderful soundtrack um, to that movie, Day of the Dead. But there's just something about that movie that always appealed to me. Number four, Return of the Living Dead. Uh, great horror comedy um, from George Romero's um, writing partner on the original Night of the Living Dead, John Russo. Um, so Return of the Living Dead is number four for me. And then number five is Hammer's Plague of the Zombies, uh, which I think I've heard mentioned was probably something of a stylistic and visual influence on Fulci's Zombie 2. I have not actually seen Plague of the Zombies, but you mentioned it was Hammer. Yeah, I'm a big Hammer horror fan. Yeah, as am I. I love 
uh, pretty much any hammer horror that I've seen, like the the Frankenstein series, the Dracula yeah. series, Hands of the Ripper. I think yeah. I want to say Vampire Circus was a hammer production. I think so. So yeah, I just I'm a sucker for for their you know, horror films, which were always just very visually striking and yeah. and almost surrealist in a lot of ways. And they had a really great gothic atmosphere i just think they really the hammer movies got that gothic atmosphere right and plague of the zombies is neat it's been a long time since i've seen it i need to revisit it but it's neat because it it does still fall into that kind of like pre-romero you know i I actually right now off the top of my head can't remember if if maybe it it came out in the 60s i I think it was pre-romero but either ways uh it kind of falls into that classic more classic zombie, but at the same time, you do get images of them coming up out of the ground, which I've already mentioned I'm a sucker for. So, yeah, that movie always kind of the imagery from that really struck stuck with me. I really might have to check out Plague of the Zombies. But my favorite zombie films, 28 Days Later, even though, yes, technically it's the Rage Virus. Yes. They're not zombies, but essentially the infected exhibit similar characteristics to yeah. zombies so i'm gonna count that one as a zombie film a lot of people do dawn of the dead oh gee, I, okay. I went with that uh oh the original okay cool not the not the remake although i i, I like the remake i think yeah. a lot of people hated it but i thought it was good i was one of those people that hated it mostly because romero didn't want it made but i am i was just telling somebody earlier i'm ready to revisit it i'm ready to give it another go I'd be very interested to hear what you think upon yeah. revisiting it. Cause I, I don't think it's a terrible film. I just, and it doesn't, it pales in comparison to the original. Sure. But I mean, anything's going to, yeah. Uh, like you return of the living dead. Good choice. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was kind of fun to see where the, this kind of what if scenario took the uh, genre and kind of yeah. split from the more serious horror of the Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead franchise, and yeah. kind of instead was just very comedic. And I think it introduced the concept of zombies eating brains instead to my of just knowledge, flesh. Yeah. yeah, to my knowledge, that's true. Uh, and yeah, I I actually love all of the films in that uh, <laughs> in that series. I've only seen the first two. Uh, the, the I think a couple of the later ones weren't quite as good, but the first two are, are phenomenal, yeah. and I still thought the rest were pretty good. Uh, the Serpent and the Rainbow, mm-hmm. which is a film that I know I've brought that up a few times on on the podcast, and as I was watching Zombie Two, I kept thinking about the Serpent and the Rainbow. Yeah, similar setting and feel. Oh yeah, very similar atmosphere and and physical setting uh and and the whole voodoo element of course as well which i i adore and uh night of the comet good choice man yeah although you know i really debated putting zombie 2 on there i'd, I'd say that's a very close uh, runner up yeah, so. I'm, I'm glad to hear you liked it that much. I, I was really pleased that our lists only um, intersected in one in one place, which was Return of the Living Dead. I think a lot of times our, our tastes run somewhat similar, and we have several of the same ones. So I was interested to see that our lists were mostly different. And you know what I think that speaks to? I think it speaks to just the sheer volume of zombie films that have been made. 
Yeah, it's true. And, and also, uh, I think even though our, our lists only have one uh, crossover, uh, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, you know, yeah, I'd say those are pretty similar. Yeah, oh. I think so too. I think that I think Day of the Dead is a little bit of an unsung hero. Sometimes I really have always thought it was great. There's people who like it and people who don't. But I am confused why anyone would not like it because I agree. I think it's just a, a fantastic film. But I don't know. There's something to me about Dawn that that I just absolutely love every time I watch it. It was a revolutionary movie. I mean, it it really is the movie. It now that one. I mean, I, you know, Night of the Living Dead kind of created the modern conception of zombies, but Dawn of the Dead is the one that really took hold and kind of sparked the whole zombie craze. I mean, you know, and made zombie movies so ubiquitous. Absolutely. Uh, although, kind of like you were saying, although Night of the Living Dead introduced the concept of the modern zombie. It was Dawn of the Dead that really popularized yeah. that as a genre and yeah. kind of helped to spawn this string of of sequels and, and also imitators. Yeah, most I was what I was just thinking. Most of, of what we think of as zombie cinema really has its roots in Dawn of the Dead more than Night of the Living Dead. It's they're they're usually more visually the ancestors of I'm sorry, the descendants of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, but I pretty much love most of the films in that in that series, including oh, yeah. uh, Day of the Dead. Just a very yeah. solid film. So with that, why don't we rate this? Okay. Um, am I first? You are going first. Okay. Um, eventually, I'll stop asking that, and I'll just start assuming. Um, so uh, I... I've thought a lot about how to rate this film. As, as I've said earlier, this is a movie that holds a really special place in my heart. Uh, I have a pretty solid collection going of various little knickknacks and souvenirs from the movie, things that are related to the movie, including uh, just today in the mail, I received a packet of souvenir fake earthworms uh, <laughs> packaged with the zombie logo that are connected together to look like the famous uh, worms in that zombie's eyeball. Um, so I, and I love the score for this movie. Uh, this is a movie that really honestly left a lasting impact on me in the way that I enjoy films, introduced me to my favorite um, film composer, one of my favorite directors and in, an Italian genre cinema in, uh, overall. Uh, it's not a flawless movie by any means. And I think that the, the, its flaws are really something to add character to it more than anything else. Rather than being a distraction, I think that its flaws kind of uh, make me love it even more. That being said, I mean, you know, it is what it is. It is a crazy, over-the-top, gore-fest, not a lot of characterization, beautiful shots, um, but but mostly just known for being just over-the-top and insane. That being said... My love of the film, recognizing some of its flaws, I am going to give it a, f- a four out of five. And I uh, I think you make some really good points there. I think it's just a completely batshit kooky film, but incredibly cohesive nonetheless. Like, I mean, thinking back about it, uh, you know, it kind of maintains this uh, very f- 
cohesive quality, I think, through that fusion of different genres, like, you know, pairing the adventure film with horror and kind of even throwing a little bit of a of a kind of mystical uh, element as well with like the voodoo. And uh, I just, I thought it was a very strong narrative. It does have its flaws. Uh, you know, I thought there were a few scenes at the beginning that just kind of ended abruptly. And at times the, the gore, which I mean, you know, give the effects credit, they hold up incredibly well. I thought the gore was sometimes a little gratuitous, uh, but I still thought it was just a very fun film. I had a blast while watching this. I actually didn't expect to uh, kind of feel as much elation as I as I did while watching this because I don't think it's something you necessarily predict when you're sitting down to watch a horror film. Uh, and I, I loved some of the off-the-wall moments like the shark versus zombie. Um, and I thought it had some very memorable characters. Uh, so I'm going to give this one a four out of five as well. I'm so happy. I'm I'm I am I am so excited that you enjoyed this movie so much. Yeah, you know, I it's it, I think it, it it's a a film with a lot of replay value and I think if you're the kind of person who enjoys this, you enjoy the heck out of it. At the same time I can I can see why people would also hate this film. Yeah. I think it's something I was saying to you during the break. Maybe I don't think I said it on the while we were recording, but uh, I think that Fulci, as I've said, is a, is a complicated character. And if you ask ten different people in, in interviews about Fulci, you get ten different answers about who he was. But just as a fan and having seen a lot of his movies and interviews and things like that, the thing that really strikes me about Fulci is that while there is a a certain cruelty and possibly even misanthropy in a lot of his storytelling and the way he shoots these really gory violent shots uh there it all seems to be infused with a very sort of macabre humor to me and so i I just really think that's part of what makes these films so enjoyable is just that while that yes they are violent yes they are over the top and not for everybody there is at the same time a sense of fun that comes through. And uh, a quote that I wrote down uh, in an interview with his daughter, Antonella, um, she said that her father told her many times, if you don't have fun making a movie, your audience won't have fun watching it either. That's an excellent quote. And I I 100% echo what you just said and uh, would add, I think a lot of the kind of macabre humor is very subtle. I don't think it's the kind of thing that you would really be able to tell. Oh no! Uh, and even if you were looking for it, I think it's it's pretty easy to miss. But yeah, I, th- I think it's one of those. Uh, it, it is there. It's just kind of well concealed. Oh yeah, it's not a funny or or in any way comedic film. But I think that I guess what I'm trying to get at is I think there's a sense of uh, a sense of fun under it all. Albeit buried under a very macabre uh, packaging. Yes. So yeah, I I really enjoyed this one. It's uh it's a film I I think I will definitely return to. Uh, yeah, it's it's one I I would definitely rewatch. So glad. Yeah. Welcome. So if this is one that you have seen, I would say give it another watch. If it's 
one that you have yet to experience, I think it's it's well worth watching, even if you think you're going to hate it. It's just very unique, and there are not a lot of other films like it, even though uh, I think just kind of judging it from its cover, you might assume that it kind of shuffles along with the rest of the kind of brainless horde of zombie films. Yeah, I think it's a very unique film and I, I would certainly say that you should give it a watch if you've never seen it it's unlikely that you will see many other films quite like it because i was actually very pleasantly surprised i figured this would kind of be similar to well, going in i thought it was going to be similar to a lot of the other zombie films that i've watched and in some ways it, it was familiar but there were just so many little uh, unique touches that uh, it felt very fresh yeah it's a film with a lot of character Absolutely. So that's our show for the night. You can check us out at Celluloid Fiends on Twitter and Facebook and Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And if you haven't already done this, head over to iTunes, leave us a rating, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you want to follow me, you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my film reviews at cupofmo.com. And I write about tech over at techuplife.com. Yeah, and so closing out here, this is Wes Clifton signing off. You can find me on Instagram at Cliff Weston. If you'd like to check out some of my fiction writing, you can do so at wdclifton.wordpress.com. Going along with what Mo just said, if you want to help us out, if you're listening to this and you are enjoying it, first off, thank you very much. Uh, and also tell a friend about this. You know, we would really love if, if people would kind of spread it around and tell your friends who maybe are film buffs or maybe are just wanting to discover some some new movies. And remember, be kind, rewind. You are in a room filled with your friends, but they're all dead. Suddenly, one by one, they begin to move, to live again. Where the hell are they? Zombie. How can we stop Here, take this. Zombie. They are decaying. They are missing from their graves. Shut up! Zombie. It's shocking. That's why no one under 17 will be admitted. Save me. It is midnight on a tropical island. A beautiful young girl's long hair streams against the coral reef. Her beautiful body is caressed by the tide. Suddenly, a decayed hand rises up and blood-drenched jaws move to bite her. The living dead walk again. Zombie. They are decaying. They are missing from their graves. They live and hunger for your flesh. There is no place you can hide. Zombie, you are what they eat. No one under 17 will be admitted. Zombie. The shadows move. The wind howls. You run in terror and hide. Bloody hand rises to grab you, and with an axe you split apart what was once human. Zombie. No one under 17 will be admitted. They come out of the darkness to take over your soul, to eat your flesh, 
and make you one of the living dead. Ah! Zombie is about to begin, and you will eat it up. It's got my arm! Zombie, we are what they eat. No one under 17 admitted.